I love this place so much. I love being here with y'all. I love the time that we share together. I love our times of worship. I love our worship department, our worship team, and how how they're pursuing the Lord the way they are. A lot of the songs that we do here that, you know, like today, I, I, they wrote 75% of what you heard sung today, you know, just on the fly this morning. And the, the Lord is doing a new thing. I love that line from that Misty Edwards song. The Lord is doing a new thing, so we're singing a new song. And uh, that's what I feel what we're doing here. So we have been in our worship series for the last roughly 10 weeks or so-ish, and there's been a lot that's been said about worship, so much, and uh, uh, great messages. Pastor David has brought some of the best messages on worship I've ever heard, and I've heard a good one or two of them. And, uh, and Jeremy was here a couple weeks ago from uh, Upper Room Dallas, uh, Fort, wherever he's at, Fort Worth, I don't know. It was great. He did incredible, and uh, we're not done yet. So <clears throat> just, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a brief history about myself. I, I, I know most of you, we've shared stories, but for those of you who don't know me, again, my name is Jordan, and I've been uh, in church my entire life. My father was a pastor, still is to this day. I'm a PK, and I felt the call of God in my life when I was really young. And it wasn't, even then, I remember thinking it wasn't because dad did it, even though I loved what my dad was doing. I had a real, the fear of the Lord was on my life. And I felt it, and I responded to it, even at a young age. And I gave the Lord everything I had. I ran so hard, um, especially in my teen years. Like, I sacrificially laid my whole life before the Lord. I read, I read the Word vigorously. I spent hours and copious amounts of time in the presence. And, and because of that, the Lord blessed me with understanding that was far beyond my years, with uh, reach that was far beyond what I could have ever hoped for, and then before you know it, I was traveling and doing records and doing all the things that I was not qualified for, but God qualified me. But somewhere along the way, um, that the fear of the Lord um, started to dissipate from my life because I got good at what I did. And becoming good at what you do or thinking that you are good at what you do on your own is, is you're, you're already on your way to not fearing the Lord or uh, revering uh, the things that he has given to you. And uh, so along the way, I don't, I don't know what day or what time, I, that's not how it works. It's a slow fade. Um, and before I moved out here, you know, I, I had begin to, I lost the fear of the Lord of my life and I was unrepentant in some hidden sin in my life. And that caught up with me. The grace that I had for so long, for so many things, the Lord said, and no more. Because I love you, no more. And I had to, uh, that's that Hebrews 10, that when you sin after the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sin. It's like treating the blood of the covenant like a common thing and therefore insulting the spirit of grace. And I was insulting the spirit of grace. But God, you know, like, and uh, I... I started a process of repentance and healing, and that's a lot of what this place has been to us. And I can't thank all of you enough for being there for my family. And, what the, and this, this place helped shape what God was going to be doing in my life all the way up until now and what he'll continue to do. And so I'm so thankful. Um, so that's just a little bit of my story. Uh, this message that I'm going to be sharing with you today, it's coming from a perspective that I've never personally really heard publicly. I'm not saying I'm, I discovered it or something like that. I just haven't heard a message on it. Um, and it was new to me as I was spending time with the Lord. 
And uh, what I ask of you as you go with me on this journey today is to listen carefully, maybe take some notes, maybe even return to it later because it's gonna be important for you to hear not just what I'm saying, but also what I'm not saying, okay? Uh, because the, it'll bring clarity. I love like when sermons are easy. You know, it's, it's so awesome. Like when it's just like three points and let's go home and, and it's just powerful and potent. And sometimes it's all a sermon needs to be. Uh, but this one I would say was challenging to my way of thinking, even as I was writing it and as the Lord was um, unfolding some certain things to me. So, um, so I want, I want to encourage you to chew on it. And, and one thing I've learned over the years, and I shared this in the first service, but I had this encounter with the Lord some years ago where the Lord ended up telling me that in this encounter that he was infinite within being infinite. And I didn't fully understand what that meant, but I was taken into heaven and I saw this sea. It looks like it was like a Revelation 4, like sea of glass type situation. And, but in my encounter, it wasn't a sea of glass per se as much as it was a sea of diamonds. And I knew intuitively as I looked out that it went as deep it was deeper than anything I could imagine and went further than I could ever see. And the, there was this light source that I knew was the Father and it was shining down onto the sea of diamonds. And as it hit the sea, it refracted into millions of prisms and trillions of prisms of light that were shooting out all over. And, uh, and I'm standing in this just in awe and the Lord is like, this is my love, son. And I, and I remember this encounter happened after I had been teaching on the love of God and it was getting real, real intense. <laughs> and I was having lots of encounters on the love of God, but it was, he was like, this is my love, son. And, I was, and then I heard the father say, now step to your right. And I stepped to the right and the, everything changed, all of it. Every, like it was completely new. Like I, I shifted my position and the light shot out a million trillion other ways. And it was infinite and it was light and beauty like I'd never seen. And I was just blown away. And, I, and then the Lord's like said, watch this. And then he moved the light source just so slightly and it changed all over again. And he says, son, this is, like my, this is my, like my love. It is infinite within being infinite. Anything you think you know about me, you've only seen one side. And even though that feels infinite, you haven't even scratched the surface yet. So like, this is him. This is God. He's infinite. So we, that's why we can meet infinitely. Like, how many sermons have you preached? How many sermons have I preached? How many worship services I've been in? I've been in thousands. I, I was... Telling somebody the other day, like, it's so weird. Like, I was leading 200 or something worship services a year, preaching 40, 50 times a year. And, and it's like, I've done this so much. And you know what? I still am looking forward to coming into this place. Like Pastor David was saying earlier, like, I, I, can't, I love being here with y'all, experiencing the Lord again, because he's infinite, and we can experience him again. We can see something new again. We can see something fresh again. So... So I'm just going to pray. I, this, I always pray before I speak because it helps. Father, I just thank you for who you are. God, I ask that for grace, grace, grace. And I ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to just fill the room, not just me, but this whole room, that our eyes and ears and the, the eyes of our understanding would be open. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my sermon today is um, The Worship of the Father. You know, I've heard, 
I've heard lots of sermons about the worship of Jesus, his perfect sacrifice, and we know his story well. I'm gonna allude to that later in the sermon today, but today we're gonna be talking specifically about the worship of the Father. So we're gonna start in Genesis, the beginning of everything. So can you please pull up Genesis 1, verse 26? And I wanna talk about how, what the Father's does, what the Father's posture is, and how the Father models for us anything that he's gonna ever ask you to do. There's not one thing that the Father will ever ask you that he hasn't fully done, completed, or modeled for you or on your behalf, okay? So let's go through Genesis 1. Starting in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, then God, and if you got your Bibles, like pull them out. Don't just rely up there. I, I like pulling out your phones. Let's read these together. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created the male and female he created them. So male and female are both equally the image of God. They make up facets of him. In verse 28, it says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seed, over the birds of the air, to the heavens of every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heaven, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31 says, and God saw that he, what he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning and then the sixth day. So I wanna run through these verses. So if you can pull up verse 26 again. So the first thing that it says, it says, let us make man in our image. So you were created out of an us. Everything about that we do, in order for us to create a child, it takes an us. We need, you always need an us. You need a covenantal relationship. So there's an us. The us there is translated the Elohim, the, the Godhead, the 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 lordship of heaven, we were created out of their mutual love and admiration for one another. Their covenantal preferences towards one another created man. They, their love and overflow, they're, they're, we are an overflow of the joy of heaven into the earth, okay? So all creation comes from in us. Verse 27 says this, so God created man in his own image. So uh, I was studying in the Hebrew what this means. And, and it, I, I like how it says this. is God created man in his own image. And the image of God, he created male and female, he created them. But in the Hebrew, it says it more like this. It says, in the Elohim, the great and powerful one, filled the man with the representation of himself. So what does this mean? And I... I, I Got this excerpt from the Ancient Hebrew Research Center. It says this. I just loved it, so I don't want to try to, I want to actually read it. It says, when we read and God created man in his own image, our minds form a mental picture of what we look like, and then we attribute this picture to God himself, that God looks like us. 
right? In the Hebrew mindset, it is not the appearance of something that they concentrated on, but rather its function. So through the Hebrew, this passage is not implying a picture of man, but a picture of God and his function. So through the Hebrew words of this text, we see that God has placed within man a shadow or representation of his very own functions, his goals, his purposes, his thoughts, etc. It is our responsibility to live our lives as representatives of, representatives of God, acting in the same manner that he would in the world. So Exodus 20, verse 7, this very you know, it's uh, one of the commandments, one of the 10 commandments. It says, you shall take not, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, right? We've heard this and growing up, that meant you, you didn't drop the GD. You never dropped the GD. If you did, mom would karate chop you, right? All right, that, that was the word. <clears throat> but the thing is, is that saying GD, though I wouldn't recommend it, is not necessarily what it means to take the Lord's name in vain, in the Hebrew translation of, the, of this passage, it says, you shall not represent the character of Elohim falsely. So taking the, the Lord's name in vain is representing his image. So when people see you as an image, when they see you, they don't see his image. So the only way to represent the Elohim rightly is, to, is for you to be able to save your life. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That is what it looks like to represent the image rightly. Jesus was the embodiment of not taking the Lord's name in vain. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I only do what my Father is doing. Whew. Verse 28. I love this. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So what does that mean to be fruitful and multiply? God's plan, and why subdue it? So like the thing is, if you're in a garden, what is there to subdue? If the garden is perfect, what is there to subdue? What needs to, so subdue means to take something under control. So the thing is, is that the whole earth did not look like the garden. The garden was only a portion of the earth. The garden had borders. The thing about man is that you are created to be fruitful and multiply. And through your fruitfulness, God's plan is through you to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So God's plan for man since the beginning of time is to fill you with the essence of himself, the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. That Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the secret that was hidden, but is now revealed as Christ inside of you, the hope that glory has in the earth. So what he does is he puts it inside of you, puts you in a garden and says, now subdue everything that is not under control. So the way that you do, God's plan was to flood the earth with people. That's how you flood the earth with glory. That's how the earth is filled with glory as the waters cover the sea. His plan has not changed. His plan is you and me, okay? So that was God's plan. But what really got me here is that for the first time I saw this, it says, and God blessed them. And that word blessed in the Hebrew is the word barak. And the word barak means two things. It means literally to bless, but it also it means to kneel. And I was talking with Mark between services and he brought out to my memory something that I knew about two of them. I didn't know the third one. There's only three times that we see God kneel. 
in the scriptures. One is right here. One is when he buried Moses at his death. And one was the woman who was caught in adultery. And he, he bends down into the dirt. Okay. So God blessed them. What does bless mean? Barak means to kneel. So I want you to picture the God of the universe is pictured kneeling to bestow worth and blessing on something that he deemed as good. What is what we call God? Throughout the, the Old Testament, like the songs of ascent, we have the Psalms of David, we have uh, the song of Moses. There's these, these, these lines, what do they start with? You are good and your mercy endures forever. You are good all the time. You guys, you know what I mean? Like there's, he is good. We know this well, but God, remember what I just, what, how did I start this off? That God does not ask anything of you that he is not first modeled. The first word over all of our life is that you are good. You know what? As soon as I said that, all I felt was a bunch of blocks. Like people were like, <laughs> wait, no. That's not how that works. That's not me. The first word over man was that you are good. So God declared over our life the thing that we are called to declare over him. So he used this adjective that we try to use to describe him to tell us what he thought of us. All right, let's fast forward to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, 7 says this. This is more specifics on how God made man. It says, and then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Other versions say a living being. Other versions say a living soul. So we're gonna break down some of these words in here. So it says, and the Lord God formed man. So the word formed in the Hebrew is yatsar. In the Hebrew, it's an, actually one of the names for God that means potter. So yatsar is an incredible descriptive Hebrew word that actually means to shape through squeezing. So I, I started meditating on this like, what does it mean to be shaped through squeezing? And I started seeing, and what does it mean for God to be like a potter? We, we see it in Isaiah that you are the potter, I'm the clay. But in order for someone to, for a potter to form a vessel, the finer the vessel, the greater the care. All right? So like what I realized is like, it's like a potter, when he's getting, when he's trying to make something thinner and finer and more beautiful and and the shape to be perfect, the potter has to approach it with fear and trembling. Not because he's afraid of the clay or think the clay is like worth something that's like more than him. It's not. But in order for the vessel to be what it's created to be in the eyes of the potter, it has to be formed with fear and care and squeezing and shaping and molding. So this, this kind of fear is the same kind of fear that we are asked to approach God with, with 
care and wonder and behold it and bewilderment and like breathe. And so like, and where this hit me was when I had my, my children, my, both of my children, Selah and Emma. Yeah, she's right there. <clears throat> I remember when Selah was born, this was my first encounter with having a child, obviously. She, uh, she came out and she wasn't breathing. She had the umbilical cord wrapped around her neck three times. They didn't know, so it was a surprise, and we're like, we gotta figure this out. So she came out not breathing. And so for a, a child to come into the world without the sound of a cry is uh, very scary. And I remember my heart was like down, like in my feet, and I was like waiting, and it was probably only about 60 seconds, but it felt like 60 years. I was dying inside. And so, and they just dogpile. You're like, you know, it's like six nurses, they're all like disappearing. I'm like, what's going on, what's going on? It just feels chaotic, and I'm like, Sitting there, and then all of a sudden, you hear that cry. And what does the cry mean? The cry means she has breath. Hear my cry, O Lord, attend unto my prayer. Cry out to the Lord for mercy. This is one of the things, this is the reason this church works, is because this guy never stops crying out to the Lord. And it's like, you just, when you don't know, it's, you cry out. Because when you cry, ah, 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 when you release the cry, it releases the breath. It's the most authentic thing that can come out of your mouth. It's just a, ah. And the first thing that the child does is release the cry. Release the breath, the only way she knows how. So I'm standing over her and I'm like going, I will go over to it. And I remember the first thing I thought as I stooped down into the little thing that was like down here, there's a picture of it. We have a picture of it somewhere. And I did this with both my children. I scooped down and I put my hands around them and they're so tiny and they're so fragile. And the first thing you think is don't drop this. (laughs) Don't drop this. And I, and I realized, you know what I felt? Fear. Not the fear of like, I can't do this or I can't handle this or I'm not qualified to do this, but the fear and the trembling is that I've never held anything this precious to me ever in my arms. And I'm looking at her and I got hit with what the father felt. Just is that, oh my goodness, I would die for you right now. Like, you've been alive for 30 seconds. You've done nothing for me except yell in my face. <laughs> you've only screamed in my face. You've done nothing for me except come into existence. Your mother and I made you. You hold my essence inside of you. All you've done is come into the world. All you've done is take your first breath and cry. And all I know is, is that if someone come in this room right now and said it's between you and her, I am dying right now without a second thought because that is how much she was worth. That's how much Emma was worth. That's how much Selah's worth to me. They're worth everything because they hold my essence. They hold my wife's essence. They're, they're the promise of our covenant fulfilled embodied in a person right there. And, and, and the way I held it is with fear and with trembling. 
And then the Lord has been showing me as I was reading Psalms 139. <clears throat> says that, <clears throat> verse 13 says, he formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, O Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are the works of your hand. My soul, my nefesh knows it well. And the thing is, is that my frame, oh, here, I love this. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So the thing is, is that, oh, I love this. How precious to me, <laughs> your thoughts, oh God. How vast is the sum of them. My soul knows them well. So the thing is, is I realized in, in verse, I think it's 13, 14. I, when I was reading it one day and I, I understood, I realized I understood wonderfully made. That made sense. That made sense, right? I got that. But I, had, I did not understand fearfully. I did not understand what it meant to be fearfully made by God. Why does the creator of all things, the creator of the universe, how, why, why approach us with fear and trembling? Not, not that kind of fear, but just like, okay, form this right, all right. This is, this is the most precious thing. You don't understand, guys. <laughs> this is the most precious thing. It's because he put his nefesh inside of you. His living soul was imparted into you. So Genesis, let's go back up here, sorry. So what I realized coming out of this is that it says in Genesis that too, that God forms you, he, that yet sar. The thing is, is that all of the other cre creation, God spoke them into existence, but man, he formed. You were not spoken into existence. You were formed. So like he says, let there be light. And just, he spoke it and it's still letting. It's the universe is still expanding to this day. Just one word from his mouth, the word continues to perpetuate. But you were different. You were formed. It wasn't, in God's eyes, it wasn't just enough to say you. Like, man, be there. No, no, no. I'm gonna, everything stops now. And what I'm gonna do is kneel down. So the God of the universe forms us fearfully and wonderfully like a potter. So he approached us with this kind of fear. He kneels down like a father. He humbles himself from the heavens, goes low, bows down towards the dust. And he baroques it. He blesses it. He releases his essence. And it says he released it into the nostrils. The word nostrils in the Hebrew is af or af. And that means face. It's not just not, it's like, so he goes face to face. 
the God of all things, the Father of all creation, instead of just using words, chooses to get on his knees, this metaphorical God knees. <laughs> and, and he bends his body over and brings his face to the dust and releases face to face the essence of his life that an affection to man and a living being comes forth. Look at what I just did. Worship. Releasing the breath. The father never asks you to do something that he hasn't done first. He is the perfect model. He's not needy. He's not greedy. He bestowed such worth upon you so that you knew how to bestow worth upon him and upon everyone else. How to give worth away. How to give identity away. See, the thing is, is that if he didn't show Adam worth, he couldn't name the animals. It says that God will wait to see what Adam would do. What? How? Why wait? You know everything. It's the same thing I do with my kids when I wait on them to tell me stuff. It's not because I don't know. It's because I'm intrigued by what they're going to do. Because I care more about the relationship than getting the answer for them. So yeah, you want to go ahead and name the animals. But you see, the thing is that if you don't have identity placed in, in, into you, if you don't have nefesh placed into you, if you don't have a living soul placed into you, you can't give identity away to anything else. So like the, that's the thing about creation. Man was created to give identity to anything that it comes in contact with. So the thing is, is that you can't give that away until you understand what it means to have the, cre- the essence of God being placed inside of your body in a living soul. So the measurement that we, so, and then to top it all off, he looks at us and he's like, that's good. And so he uses the measurement of himself to measure you. You are measured by him. And what's the measurement? I said, you're good. That's the measurement. God compared you with himself. That's nuts. And if you don't hear me, if you just clip that out, don't clip that out, Andres. It just sounds like I, without context, you don't understand. But like God compares you with himself because you have his essence. You have his living soul. So why am I telling you all this? I'm trying to get you to understand the way the the father worshiped. This is just in the beginning. We haven't even got to the end. And so, and this is what you got to understand too. And I'm going to choose my words as carefully as I can. Okay. God didn't worship you as deity. He imparted into you the divine and the divine has to be bestowed honor upon. So like you are not divin- you are not the divinity, but you've been brought into covenant, a covenantal family and been made beyond what you are. You hear me? So, <laughs> so you're divine. Like you, 
you are not divinity itself, the essence of the Godhead. But the thing is, is that we've been brought into the family through adoption, through marriage, through friendship. Every metaphor that we have on the earth for family, God said, I've married you. I've, through covenant, brought you up into this family, this Elohim, this Godhead. You're not one of them, but you're in them, and, and I'm in you. That's what it's like to be snatched up into the family of God, snatched up into the divinity, snatched up into the divine, not of your own works, but because of the essence that is put inside of you. That's why, man. So Genesis 3, you guys doing all right? Is it? Is this making sense so far? Okay, all right. Genesis 3, verse 21. So let's paraphrase this story. We all know it pretty well. So Adam, the man, and the woman eat from the tree, the one thing they're told not to do. And I, I said this in the first service, but this is very important to know. Adam, uh, Eve did not have a name yet. She was just woman. She, they were both Adam. It was Adam, the man, and the woman. Eve got her name after the fall when Adam needed to give identity to something and he didn't know how to anymore, so he had to create a division, okay? Became Eve, post the curse. But before the curse, she was Adam and he was Adam. That's why it didn't matter who ate the apple. It didn't, when, when the woman ate the apple, Adam fell. So when your wife falls, you fall. That's covenantal relationship. That's why a woman takes on the name of the man. We didn't make it up. See what I'm saying? It's Adam, the man and the woman. So they both fell. What do they do? When you, when you experience sin for the first time, you feel shame for the first time. When you feel shame for the first time, you hide. So here comes the father to them. Like, where are you, Adam? And he didn't mean where are you. He knew where they were. But the Lord never asks you questions he doesn't know the answer to. The problem is, is that you don't know what you're doing. So it's through him asking that it's revealed like, wait, what am I doing? So they're hiding and the father comes. So the thing is, is that this is the misconception. People think that God is not, can't get near sin. God can. He actually comes to you and sin. The problem is, is that you can't feel him because of the war between your mind. Shame blocks you from him. So like, so the sin itself, the Lord's like, all right, let's get dirty. I'm ready to clean some stuff up. That's the father's response. I had that, I learned that the hard way when my daughter got poop every one day and she actually rubbed it on the TV and Ruth wasn't at the house and I'm cleaning this up and I really, really hate poop. Really, 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 really bad. And uh, it was one of, the, one of the first few times I was really like, you know, left prolonged with the kids on my own. And, and, uh, and she had like, she was got on the TV stand and the TV. I was gone for seven seconds, you know? And the thing is, is that, but the revelation hit me as I was cleaning her and, you know, like in all that, that I hate this, but I love her more. You see, you see the picture there and it's like, so I don't enjoy it. It's dirty. But the thing is, is that I'd rather get my hands dirty so that she can live a long and healthy life. Because if I don't clean it, what happens next? She gets sick. She gets infected. 
She becomes something that she's not. Okay. So, <clears throat> so the father comes to them in the middle of their junk. They just bomb it. Biggest bomb ever. And he's like, hey, what y'all doing? And then they're all like, oh, we, we hid because we were naked. He's like, who told you that? You've only ever believed what my essence told you. Who said you were naked? So like what shame does is it makes you navel gaze and it makes you try to self-realize and that's the whole problem, self-correct. And so the way I self-correct is I hide and try to make clothes to cover myself. Try to cover myself with things from the earth. You know what I mean? And the father is like, okay, that's not how we're gonna do this. And, and this is what happens next. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This right here is the first sacrifice we see in scripture. God's answer to the biggest bomb of all time is that like, listen, this is mercy, by the way. I'm gonna clothe you in skin. So he kills an animal, a sacrifice, and then covers them in the sacrifice, prophesying of what his son was gonna fulfill. So it was already set in motion. Verse 22, yeah, let's read, let's read this. And the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now let us reach out his hand and, and take also the tree of life and, and, and eat. Uh, lest they uh, live forever. So therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground of which uh, he was taken. He drove the man out and, and at the east of the garden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away the, uh, turned every, every one away to guard the way to the tree of life. And so like, why? So like this right here, this is mercy. A lot of people think that God is vindictive and like that he's like rude or like that he just can't take it because somebody fell. No, in his infinite mercy, he's like, listen, if I leave you here in your delusion with access to the tree of life, you will live forever in your torment and your, and your lies. So I have to violently separate you from the thing that you've known and the thing that you've loved. So much so I'm gonna put a cherub in front of it with a flaming sword. This metaphor is a really deep metaphor, but for the sake of time, I'm going to cut you off with a flaming purification sword from the thing that you know so that you have the opportunity for my son to bring it all back and not just allow you to eat from the tree of life, but to put the tree of life inside of you. That is mercy. That is the beauty of God. So mercy is always a sacrifice. I want you to hear me. Listen, mercy is always a sacrifice on the person who gives it. It is a sacrifice. Mercy is the father's sacrifice towards you. You don't, like, he, you don't, are you hearing me? It's his sacrifice towards you. It's a worship of the Father. So before the foundations of the world, 
God's immediate response and action to his desire to create all creation was to set in motion a plan of redemption. The God had made the decision before the foundations of the world that Jesus was the plan of heaven for redemption, that Jesus would present an act of worship so perfect that it would not just redeem man, but it would redeem all time and it would redeem the entire cosmos. Revelation 13, eight says that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. So the choice of perfect worship was made by the father, by the son and by the spirit before the world was ever created or formed. So God inserted himself into time through his son. And he offered the perfect sacrifice. He modeled the perfect worship on our behalf. And we know the story of Jesus very well, the story of the passion, the story of the crucifixion very well. It's the most famous story of selfless sacrifice ever told. But today I wanna try to bring another perspective. And what was the father doing then? What about what the father offered that day? The father, like Abraham, willingly laid down and gave his one and only son, that John 3, 16, okay? That for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son. The thing is, is that, is that ever weird? Because he was the firstborn among many brethren. So I was like, what do you mean the only? The the Greek word there, mana, mana something, can't remember right now. It means his, the only unique one, just like, there was, there's only one unique one like him. And he was the firstborn of many brethren to be into this realm. So the son's worship was an offering to the father that saved us all. But the father's worship was inserting his son through the incarnation and holding back all of heaven to look upon the suffering of the son. Offering him like Abraham offered Isaac. Heaven's promised hero, God's only son, goes to the altar and the father has to watch with pride, with love, and with horror all at the same time. The father had to raise the knife and the son had to make the choice not to move off the altar. So the father's worship was inserting his son into time. So the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. He is the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last. He is the beginning in the end. He is love. He is hope. He is everything true. He is the spirit. He is truth. You see what I'm saying? He is these things. He's not like these things. He is these things. So if you are the first and the last, the beginning and the end, you are outside of time and time is an object to you. So right now, as we speak in the eyes of heaven, earth is being formed, Christ is dying on the cross, and we are meeting right here, right now, as heaven looks down on the entire thing, because time is just a thing. It's a noun. It's a noun to all of heaven. So before this thing was formed in time, the son was slain. The choice was made. Are you hearing hearing me? Can you see this picture? Okay. So the son submits himself to time through the incarnation and is birthed and lives his 33 years to die. That's some worship right there. 
Okay. So now I want to move into Isaiah, Isaiah 53. So I mentioned, does anybody have any verses in the Bible that just kind of make you mad or they just frustrate you? Like you just like, I don't know what that means. I don't know how to wrestle with that. And this is one of those verses that I read for years. I've heard it my whole life. And even as a young man, it didn't make any sense to me because what I knew about God, it didn't line up with his character. I was telling the last service, I know two things about God. I know that he is good and I know that he loves me. The rest of it, I believe. Okay, I believe, I have faith for. I know these things. I, you see what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't need to be convinced anymore. No matter what I'm going through now, I know that God is good. I know that he loves me. But this is one of those things that I would read it and I didn't see the good father. I didn't know how to compute this. I didn't know how to compute this verse in, in line with the father. And the Lord showed me a couple different things about us. Let's read through it together. Verse 10, this is a, in, out of Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is a famous passage about the prophecy of the one who would come, the Messiah, and what he would grow, go through. And it says this, it says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And when I read this, this really frustrated me because how could the father be pleased to bruise the son? And so like, I was like, this must be a translation error. So I knew that the new King James said, please. So I went to the ESV, one of my other favorite translations. And it says, it was the Lord's will to crush him. And I was like, that's not any better. And then I was like, let's go to the Hebrew. And I was like, so I go to the Hebrew and it's like, it says the Lord took delight in crushing his son. And I was like, that's even worse. And I was like, how? And the first part the Lord told me was, was this. I started getting a picture and it was back to my kids, back to Emma, back to Selah. Is that when I, if I were to think about my child, if you, imagine this as a parent, I'm gonna take you down a road, a journey, but this is the worst thing imaginable. But imagine that your child had to do, go through the worst suffering known to man. The worst suffering that you could possibly endure. But your child was doing it so someone else could live. It is possible to feel two things at once. To feel the horror of the tragedy and to simultaneously be delighted, impressed, and pleased. I'm devastated that this is happening and pleased that they would do it and proud. You see what I'm saying? The only way I could see it was to see it through the lens of the father. And I was like, so it pleased the Lord. It says he put him to grief. 
And he made his soul, his nefesh, his living essence, an offering for sin. But the thing is, is that an offering for sin is actually a poor translation. It's an offering, it's, it, he made his soul, his essence, the offering of sin. So this is where 2 Corinthians 5.21 comes in. It says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God did not kill his son. God killed sin one time, once and for all. So he, the, the son, he didn't take on sin. This is the thing that, that, it's not the right language. He didn't take it on. He became it. He became the sin offering. So when the father metaphorically lifts the knife, the Abrahamic knife, he, when he's bringing the knife down, he is pleased not that he is slaughtering his son. He is pleased that he is killing the thing that is killing all of us, embodied in a man named Jesus. Do you, so do you see why he was pleased to execute judgment on the thing that was killing all of us. He's a good father. Judgment on what was killing you. So last service, this is where I had to end, but we have a little bit more time this service. And so one of the things I was thinking about is that like the father is not asking you to do anything that he himself isn't willing, hasn't done for you already. He's modeled it for you perfectly. So like when, when we're coming in here and we're asking you to make a choice to worship the Lord, you know, like Pastor David, myself, our team leaders, like I can look around, there's story after story of people going through it. Marlene, Jeremy, Jeff, Don. Kevin, uh, our elders, our TLs, my wife, myself. There are so many that are admirable that people that you should emulate. My daughter, she said, point at me, yes. There's so many people who are admirable that we should pattern after. But it's not because we're better than you or it's not because we're not human. The only thing that we are doing currently that might be different is we, are simp we have simply made the decision to offer up the sacrifice of our life in the midst of whatever we're facing, no matter how much we hate it. So like the thing is, is that the test of, of your sacrifice that you bring to the table is not whether you can come in here and worship and offer up your song when you feel good. The test is when you are in the middle of what you hate most, when you are striving and struggling more than you ever struggled in your life, when you're facing insurmountable odds. My, one of my best friends, I just came back from Dallas. Their two-year-old is, is fighting cancer right now. They need a miracle. And I'm watching them make the conscious choice to pour their life out before the Lord over and over again. I'm watching my wife in our life, like, like, you know, when we come in here, like, you know, my wife has tumors in her body. She needs miracles. It's a, it's a, it's a stretch for her to get here some days, but she's here. 
And like, you know, I, there's many days we've come in here and I, I don't feel like it. I'm facing those things. We have, and I can go through person after person after person in this room who I know your stories and you're coming in here having to overcome so much. But the thing is, is that the sacrifice of your worship is not just giving the Lord what you think he deserves when you feel like it. It's giving him everything in the midst of the worst imaginable thing. Just like the father did unto us when he gave his son in the midst of the worst thing ever imaginable. Are you hearing me? Okay. So in the midst of the loss, in the midst of the health issues, in the midst of the promise of our lives being placed on the altar like Abraham, that this is the promise and this is all I got. This is the one son I have. I'm putting him on the altar. I'm putting it all on the altar. In the midst of all that, no matter what, no matter what the death may look like, there is no other option for us. He deserves the best parts of your heart. That's that 2 Samuel 24, 24, that I will not offer up an offering to my God that doesn't cost me nothing. David was going through it they, and he went to a guy's house and he's like, listen, I will give you everything. You can take all of this and make an offering of it. And he says, no, I will pay full price for everything because I refuse to offer up a sacrifice to the Lord that doesn't cost me anything. If it doesn't cost something, it's not a sacrifice. And it cost the father to bankrupt all of heaven's treasure to bring it through the incarnation. It cost heaven everything. That's the worship of the father. So there is, so the test that is uh, when you face the long dark road of suffering is the test of Abraham laying down the thing that he loves most. So one of the things I've told the Lord's been speaking to me on is that worship for, for me, for my life, and, and this may resonate with you, has looked like is giving unto the Lord the things that I would least desire to give. In every moment, what do I least want to do right now is probably what you deserve. What is the thing I least desire to do? Okay, I probably should give that. So the only acceptable worship is your life. It's your life on the altar. The Lord doesn't care about your song if a death hasn't preceded it. The Lord doesn't care about your song if a death hasn't preceded it. The temple was laid out like this. So when you would go into the temple and there's people who are masters at it and I think KP is going to speak on it soon. I don't know a lot about it, but I know this. The temple was laid out in such a way that sacrifices preceded the holy place. So death had to happen before you went into the holy place where the altar of incense raised to the heaven. So a lot of times we come in here wanting to offer incense, but we haven't had a death. And you missed a step. And you're out of order. You're out of line. So the thing is, is that like, if something in you doesn't smell like death, don't try to offer incense. The incense is the representation of the worship rising and the intercession rising to the throne of God like a sweet fragrance, right? But the fragrance released as, as we offer melody and song and praise, et cetera, 
I'll tell you why this, these two things are so important, okay? So <clears throat> there's only two things that can keep the enemy from trying to burrow into your sacrifice, and that's fire and incense. There's only two things that can keep the enemy from your sacrifice. So the Beelzebub is one of the names for Satan, and that means Lord of the Flies. So every time there is death, God is not the only person that's attracted to death. The enemy is as well. So anytime you place your life on the altar as a living sacrifice, if you don't stay consumed by fire, the enemy will burrow its maggots into your mind and will pollute the sacrifice of your life. And when that happens, you go crazy and you get off the altar and you are no longer a living sacrifice that is a laid down lover. Are you hearing me? So, so the Lord of the flies, and he's the Lord of lies. And that what he tries to do is to burrow through the soft parts, the entry points that are soft. And if he can get into those parts, he's got you. But the only way that, 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 that those flies stay away from that sacrifice is to be consumed by fire from on high. So what protects your offering, what protects your, your life of your living sacrifice, your life laid down on the altar is to be flamed on, as our pastor so eloquently says, day in and day out. To be flamed on, to be consumed, and to offer up incense because the other thing that flies hate is incense. So as incense burns, flies are like, not there. I don't want to go there. So laid down life consumed by fire in that order, and that allows you to offer the incense up to the Lord. These two things together will keep the lies away from your mind. Leviticus 6, 12 says, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning and it shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it, wood on it every morning and shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Hebrews 12, 28 verse 20 through 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Psalms 141.2, may my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. So in light of this, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for us? In the light of these perfect models that are laid out by the Son and by the Father, now what? Our only reasonable response is to become a living sacrifice. One who lives on the altar, a life completely open, a life that's sprawled out, naked and bare, just like Jesus was, completely vulnerable, not protecting a thing, consumed by the fire. It's the only safe place in this whole world, a life sprawled out on the altar in the center of a consuming flame. I remember Misty Edwards used to sing the song that the only safe place is in the center of the flame. It is the only safe place for you is the life sprawled out, completely ablaze. Romans 12, one, we'll end with this. So one of my favorite verses says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual act of worship. Another version says, which is your reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing, by testing, you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know how you discern the will of God is by testing. Nobody likes that part. It's through being tested that you are executed judgment upon. So the thing is, is that fire is the, is the embodiment of judgment. We always think that, God, I want to be judged at the end of my life. No, you want it to be judged now. You want it all to be judged now. You want it all to be burned up now. You want it all on the altar right now. You want your life consumed now. You want anything that is not God to be judged now. Judgment begins at the house of God now. You want it all right now. Because it's in that place that you will actually find true safety, not a false sense of security that's propped up by your own altars. It is a real security on an altar that is laid down, that has been made by, not by these hands. It's a, it's a life laid down and sprawled open and vulnerable that is accepting the judgment fire of God to consume every fly, every lie, every maggot that is trying to burrow into the brain and into the minds that, that is preventing you from renewing your mind over and over again. Renew our mind with fire, God. Set our minds ablaze. Burn out every lie. Nothing will test you like fire. Fire is the judgment on whatever it touches. Our God is a consuming fire. In his essence, the inside of his eyes are fire. And you need to let him look at your life. Search me, God. Know me with these eyes of fire. And everybody's like, don't judge me, man. No, like let him, please. For, your, for, the sake, for, you, for the sake of your family and the sake of your life, please let him do it. Let him burn it all up. We stand together. Okay. <clears throat> so it, my question for you today is that like both of the stories are valid. Both are pictures of worship. It's the sons you're familiar with, but today you've learned some about the fathers. What you're, in your life, you will have times where you're the Abraham, where you're just in the midst of, you're laying the things that you desire most, the promises of your life, the things that, the dreams that you had, you're, you're even your, maybe even literally your children, you're putting them on the altar and you're like, I, I'm looking at the most atrocious thing I've ever seen. I can't believe this is happening to me. And in the story, you're like the father. You're like, but I'm going to raise the hand and I'm going to execute the act of worship no matter what. That may be where you're at today. Or you may be in a, in a place where you're just like, like Isaac, like Jesus. I'm sprawled out. 
I have no control over what's happening. I feel like I'm dying. I feel so exposed. I feel so vulnerable. I feel so naked. I feel like nothing is hidden and it hurts so bad. And you're Isaac. And you know what? The biggest thing that you could do in your life is don't get off the altar. Don't get off the altar. Stay on the altar. Let the fire fall. So wherever you're at in this story, wherever you're at in this, can we just raise our hands together? God, I ask for your consuming fire to fall on the altars of our heart, to fall on the altars of our life. Fall on the altars of Rock City Church. Fall on the altars of our life. You deserve it all. You deserve it all. You deserve it all. I'll stay on the altar. I'll lift the knife. I don't care what it looks like. I want to look like you. I want to be modeled like you, Father. I want to be a model like you, Jesus. I want to do what you do. I want to do what I saw my father do that you've been doing on our behalf and towards us and for us since the beginning of time. I want us to look like you, sound like you, smell like you. I don't want nothing to come between the instance that is rising from my life. When I come into this room and start singing the melodies and singing the songs with my friends and with my family and with my church, I don't want anything to get in the way. I don't want to skip a step. We love you. We're thankful for you. Thank you, Father, for giving your one and only begotten Son, birthing him into incarnation, birthing him into time. Thank you. What an act of worship and what an act of value that you bestowed upon us. What? That's insane. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.